One of the often asked questions today has to do with the issue of capital punishment. Is it right? Is it biblical? Well, stay with us as we deal with this issue along with many others. We'd like to welcome you to another edition of our question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We hope that you'll be able to join us for the next 30 minutes with an open Bible and an open heart as we listen to Dr. McGee's wit and wisdom in applying the truths of Scripture to the questions of his listeners. This program, of course, is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Let's begin our program with a question from a listener in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who writes, I have a question that has been troubling me for some time now. I've heard many radio pastors who say Christians should not praise God for any troubles or sicknesses that come upon them from Satan, and Christians should only receive good things from God. What do you think about this kind of teaching? May I say in answer to your question that the interesting thing is that Job answered the question. He says, shall we not receive evil from the hands of the Lord as well as receive good from the hands of the Lord? And he recognized that although God had permitted Satan to get to him, that it was God that was back of it all. And he had to learn a great lesson. I think that this man, probably one of the best men on the earth, had to learn he needed to repent. Now, God today permits us to have trouble and tribulation. And we're told that tribulation or trouble that it worketh patience in our lives. Many of us need that lesson, so God permits us to have trouble in this world. Now, God never tempts us. That is, he never tests us with evil. God never does that. But God does permit evil to come, permits Satan to attack us, and then we also need to realize Satan said to God concerning Job. He said, I'd like to get to Job, but you got a hedge around him. And the Lord let Satan through the hedge. So if Satan gets to you, he had to get through a hedge. And God permitted that. And he can't touch you unless God permits it, of course. But to say today that we only get good things from God and never get anything in the way of testing, why the Lord says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And that is something today that's going out of style. We have all this preaching. In fact, Christianity is sort of an easy way through this life. It's a way to be a success. It's a way to make a success of your marriage or make a success of your business and a way actually to make money. My friend, that is not the Bible teaching. The Bible teaching is If you belong to the Lord, he's going to chasten you. He disciplines his children. And he did Job. He permitted Paul to suffer a great deal. And he permitted others to. And God's saints down through the ages have all been tested. Martin Luther, John Wesley, John Calvin, all of these great men of the past were tested. And if you were having it too easy today, then may I say you better test your Christianity. And if today 
you think you are, as a Christian are going to avoid trouble and that sort of thing, you're entirely wrong. You're not going to. And I know that that's not popular today to say that, but this question reveals that they've been listening to preachers that are doing that type of thing today. And I think it gives a wrong impression of God. And the thing that hurts is that when trouble does come to these people that believe that God's not going to let anything bad happen to them, they really are going to some traumatic experience. They can't understand why this trouble came to them. Believe me, we need to recognize that the Bible doesn't teach this idea today that something good is going to happen to you all the time. Believe me, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And that's what he does to those that are his own. Our next question comes to us from Memphis, Tennessee, and it says, Could you please provide your interpretation of 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, taking into consideration the verse before and the verse after? Well, this is the type question that we find it difficult to deal with for the very simple reason that our purpose in the question and answer program is to answer questions, not to exegete verses of Scripture. We do that in our Through the Bible program of going through the Bible. And in 1 Timothy, we have been dealing, I've already made the tapes for 1 Timothy 4, and I go into a great deal of detail there, but I will attempt to give a brief interpretation of it for your benefit, but I may not touch on what actually you were after. If you would just ask me the question that you have in mind, not to give an interpretation. We don't, as we say, like questions like that because that's not the purpose of a question and answer program. Now let me read the verse before and the verse after 1 Timothy 4.10. Verse 9 reads, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe these things command and teach. Now, I don't know really what you're after here. I have a notion that it could be one of two things. And the first one is this. Who is the Savior of all men? Now, that doesn't mean he saves all men. He is the Savior of all men. Now, we dealt with this matter of the limited atonement the other day. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For the world, yes, but who is saved? That whosoever believeth on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, you find that in another verse. It says, whole everyone, that means everybody. Hold everyone that thirsted. Do you have a thirst for God? Have a thirst for righteousness? Have a thirst to have fellowship with Almighty God? All right, it's for you then, but it's for everyone, and he's the Savior of all men, but that doesn't mean all men are saved. 
And I think that that's what you're after, because it says especially of those that believe. Now, especially means that they're the ones that are the saved one. Because why? They believed on him. But he's the savior of the world today. And anyone can turn to him. We had with us some time ago, Mr. Joe Steiner, who is with Transworld Radio, and he told me this little story that a ship, a Russian ship in the North Sea was having trouble. Fact of the matter is it was going down. It was taking on water and the sailors were having to leave. In fact, they jumped overboard. Now, there went out a rescue of Norwegian ships, Swedish ships, Danish ships, and British ships to help, you know, because always in a time like that, ships at sea will help one that's in trouble regardless of the nationality. And they came to these fellas that had jumped overboard, these Russians, and they threw them a lifeline, but they wouldn't take it. And they wanted to know why. Imagine a man not willing to be rescued. Well, the Russians said, we're waiting for our own ship. We are not permitted to get on board any other ship. And so we're waiting for one of our ships to come rescue us. And they absolutely turned down the lifeline. And, of course, several of them were drowned. Now, may I say to you that they could have been saved. Their lifeline was thrown out. He's the savior of the world. He's thrown out a lifeline. But it's up to you to take it. And there are many today that are going under because they won't take the lifeline. But it's there. He's the savior of the world, but especially on those that believe. Now, that lifeline was for all of those Russian fellas that were in the water that were ready to drown. But it was only for those who took a hold of it. And by the way, I understand that one or two of the fellas in desperation, took hold of the lifeline. They were saved. The others were not. Now, I think that's what you're after in this passage here. And Paul also makes it clear that we both suffer reproach because this is the message that we're giving out to the world today. A listener in Minneapolis sent us this next question. He writes, I would like your help in understanding what the Bible teaches on these issues. If it is God's plan to not have marriage in heaven, what about our children? Won't they be our children regardless of their age? Also, if a child dies as a teenager, when the parents see him again, will he have grown older? Well, may I say that these are questions that are not answered in Scripture because I think these are questions that should not disturb us for the very simple reason that God is going to work this out in a way that'll be entirely satisfactory to everyone. Let me suggest to you a problem that if each family just had their own children, well, to begin with, your children grow up and they in turn have a family. And then those children grow up and in turn have a family. So what you see is the fact that if you have your children, 
then those children that grew up and had families wouldn't be able to have their families. So you see that the very fact that you feel like in heaven that you're going to move into a house with your family as it was as they grew up, it's going to be an altogether different situation. I think heaven is going to be so wonderful that we're all going to be the children of God through faith in Christ, those of us that are there. We all are going to be members of the one family. And I think that this physical family division will be entirely broken down so that every person there is just going to be your brother or your sister. I don't think this thing is going to disturb you at all. Now, there are certain things that I have wondered about, and I have no answer for it. For instance, a child that dies in infancy, and we have one like that, Ms. McGee and I do. We lost our first child. And I've always entertained the rather sentimental notion that maybe the Lord will let us have this child to raise in heaven. Now, I don't know that. I mean, I wish he'd let us do that. We'd be able to raise it under ideal circumstances, and we'd sure know more about raising children than we did when we started out. But I don't know that that is true. Whatever he arranges, it's going to be the very best that could possibly be. So this is a question that ought not to worry you at all. Just turn this over to him, and he'll work it out. Now, as to marrying and giving in marriage, I have always felt something else, and I can't prove this. Here is a man and a wife that have been very close, and there are many like that, very close. Nathaniel Hawthorne, that wrote so many wonderful novels, when he died, she made the statement, if I thought that I could not be with him in eternity, I would not want to go to heaven at all. She felt that way about him, that close to him. Well, in heaven, I do not see any reason why folk that loved each other like that down here, they'll want to be with each other in heaven, and there'd be nothing in the world to keep you from being with the ones that you wanted to be with. So again, that's a question that we can't be dogmatic about. We can only say that it's certainly going to be ideal. We're all going to be in one great family. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ, and that's going to be a marvelous arrangement. We come now to a question from a listener in Kansas City, Missouri, who writes, You've mentioned on several occasions a Dr. Bob Schuler. Is this the same Robert Schuler we see on the television? And the answer is absolutely no. Not the same man at all. The Dr. Bob Schuler that I refer to was a Methodist preacher who for many years was pastor of the Trinity Methodist Church in downtown Los Angeles. He was a great defender of the faith. He was sound in the faith. He preached the gospel, and he did not mind declaring the whole truth of God 
And I tell you, he used a straight line and let the chips fall where they may. He was retiring about the same time I became pastor in downtown Los Angeles. And I think there was an overlap there probably a couple of years. And he was a great friend and a great help to me because he had been in downtown Los Angeles for many years, and he was acquainted with many things that a young preacher should be acquainted with. He was very helpful to me, and I always appreciated him and the stand that he took. He stood for the Word of God and the things of God, and he was willing to pay the price for it. He was never on TV as far as I know, because actually it was before TV came in. But he was a great champion of the faith, a great man of God, and he was therefore not related in any way to the one that you see on TV. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Covina, California. He says, Could you explain the reality of Satan as a person rather than a force, or a myth with horns and tail? Could you also speak about the reality of sin? Well, of course, that is part of the delusion of Satan to play down his existence. That's a supreme strategy of any enemy. He deceives the opposition by making them believe he's not there. Now, Satan is a person in the Old Testament. He's called actually the son of the morning. In the New Testament, his personality is clearly delineated. Then Satan, during the Middle Ages, drove the people in the opposite direction. During that period, he was depicted as having horns, having a forked tail, and having cloven feet. So the modern conception, even today among some, concerning Satan is entirely unscriptural. Scripture doesn't present him that way. That is heathenism. That's paganism. They actually worshipped him back then. He is not a force or just a myth. He's very attractive. He makes his ministers angels of light, and he himself was the most beautiful creature God ever created. All this ugliness is certainly not scriptural by any means. Now, sin today, if... Anyone can't look around and see the condition of this world today and see the gross immorality and the violence that's in the world and can't recognize that this is sin. Now, maybe you want another synonym for sin. It does seem to me that we're living in the days of strong delusions. I think they'll get worse, but they do pretty well today. The average person today does not believe Satan exists, and does not believe sin is the reality that it is. Our final question comes to us from a listener in Baldwinsville, New York, who says, I know the Bible upholds justice, order, and decency, but could you give me the passages of Scripture that support capital punishment? Well, may I say this? The thought is that all of the Ten Commandments, the punishment breaking them was death. And many crimes that are mentioned in Scripture that today you'd get off with a very light sentence, death was the punishment that was meted out 
to the guilty party in a matter like that. I do not care today to go into a great deal of detail concerning it, but in my little book is Capital Punishment Christian. I go into a great deal of detail there. Here in California, we had a very lax governor, and our representatives were, and they thought they were actually more big-hearted and generous than God was, and so they did away with capital punishment. And friends, it's not safe to walk the streets here in Pasadena at night. You wouldn't want to walk on the street. It was obvious and is obvious, I think, to any right-thinking person that capital punishment is a deterrent from crime. Any punishment is always a deterrent for crime or for doing wrong. When I was a kid, just a boy, 12, 13 years old, I ran with a bunch of boys, and we thought it was great to steal watermelons. But there was one watermelon patch I would never go into. It was a friend of my dad's, and I knew that if I got caught there, I'd be whipped in an inch of my life, and I wasn't about to go in. It was a good deterrent to crime, by the way, and capital punishment is a marvelous deterrent for crime. So here in California, the population got excited and disturbed. Well, crime was growing. People are not safe. Many women that live alone were robbed and raped in their own homes so that they voted capital punishment back in. But we had a governor again and also a legislature. They've been a little lax about getting around to to do the thing that the people want done today. You see that these people think they're more generous than God is, but they're not. God says you're to punish crime. It must be punished. It is something that's not only right and just, but it is a deterrent to crime. There's no question about that. I know that the politicians trying not to have it passed, that there's capital punishment. They interviewed a fellow who had been in a mental institution, and he had murdered. Frankly, he didn't have all of his marbles. If it hadn't been so serious, it would have been laughable. They asked him if the thought of being put in the gas chamber would keep him from murder. And the old boy looked out into space. He's been interviewed on TV. He didn't even know what they were talking about. And he said, oh, no. Well, you could see the, the very answer that he gave is coming from a mind that wasn't quite right. But that's the best they could get because any person that's in their right mind just have to say it's a deterrent. I was riding with a man that believed that we ought not to have capital punishment, you know. He says these laws do not deter crime at all. I was riding with him, and we went by a police car, and he slowed down. And I said to him, why'd you slow down? Well, he said, did you see that police car? And I said, yes, I saw that police car, and that's the reason I'm asking you. I thought you said that that was not a deterrent to crime. Oh, he says, well, I got a ticket, and I just didn't want to get one. You see, it was a deterrent. It slowed him down. 
and he was quite a fast driver, by the way. I thought that the inconsistency of these soft-headed and soft-hearted bleeding hearts and crybabies that saying, oh, we mustn't punish the criminal. We must be nice and sweet to him. Well, God never had ideas like that. And if criminals were punished, we could have law and order today. As Dr. McGee mentioned, we have a booklet called Is Capital Punishment Christian? in which he discusses this issue in greater detail, taking into account scriptures from both Old and New Testaments. It's available for free download or purchase online at ttb.org. Now, if you'd like to know more about our other resources, including books, booklets, CDs, and more, visit our online bookstore. There you'll find a complete listing of all the items that we make available to our listeners. We encourage you to join us on the Daily Through the Bible radio program as we continue Dr. McGee's five-year study of the whole Word of God. His insights will give you a deeper knowledge of God's Word and be a great blessing to you throughout your day. If you're new to our daily program, then you'll also want to have your name added to our mailing list so that we can send you notes and outlines with our studies. We'll also include our monthly newsletter along with a handy bookmark with the suggested Bible reading for each Through the Bible program. Contact us today to get started. To reach our offices for the notes, ask to be on the mailing list, or to get more information about any of our resources, call 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, or write to Questions and Answers. For those in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or find us online at ttb.org. This is Steve Schwetz for Through the Bible Radio with the prayer that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus, take it home. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.